You're listening to a sermon from Grace Family Fellowship in Pleasant Hill, Missouri. We hope you're encouraged in the gospel through this recording. However, it is intended only to supplement your involvement in a local church. If you'd like to find out more, visit gracefamilyph.com. What we're looking at is in John chapter 8, starting in verse 12. Jesus is speaking to a group of Pharisees and certainly some other onlookers and listeners. It is during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so at this feast, they would light these huge candelabras that commemorated the pillar of smoke that led the Israelites by day in the wilderness and the pillar of fire that led the Israelites by night in the wilderness. And so Jesus appears on the scene and he goes, guys, those candelabras were about me. I am the light of the world. It's one of the the well-known I am statements of Jesus. Probably one of my favorites uh, maybe second only to later in John chapter 8 when, he, when you know, they're, they're throwing at him, well, Abraham died, and you're telling us you're not going to die. Who do you think you are? And he goes, before Abraham was, I am. So we're looking at one of Jesus' I am statements. I am the light of the world. And his first century Jewish hearers understood very clearly he was saying, I am the promised Messiah. All throughout the Old Testament, everything pointed to this moment in history. I am. There was no mistaking what he was saying. But for some unknown reason, they misapplied what he was saying. So there at the end of that section, I am the light of the world, we pick up in verse 30. Would you stand with me as we read? As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offsprings of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So... If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Holy Spirit, come and be our teacher here this morning. I pray that when we leave this place, that what would be echoing in our minds would be your word and not the words of man. Spirit, I pray that today you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding, open the eyes of our heart, that we would see where we are still in bondage. Help us to see where we have made peace with sin and help us to put to death the deeds of the flesh only in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. We begin here in verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, We see pretty quickly, though, that their belief was kind of shallow, don't we? Because as soon as he says something that they don't like, they go, hang on, we're not enslaved to anyone. So they immediately, as soon as they profess belief in Jesus, they immediately turn around and tell Jesus he's wrong. So their belief, I I think that these Jews that Jesus is speaking with, their belief is genuine, but it's relatively shallow. 
as Jesus gets under the surface a little bit and he sees that there's no root there. It reminds me of uh, where uh, Jesus in Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21, he's giving the parable of the sower and the seed. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So that's what we appear to be seeing here with these first century Jewish believers. They hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world. They receive it with joy. But as soon as something comes along that they go, I don't know about that, they're out of there. So Jesus knows the content of our hearts. Amen? Kind of amen. That's a little bit of a scary thought. He knows, brothers and sisters, where our faith is shallow. And yet he doesn't turn away from us and walk away. He knows that our profession is in many cases on the surface. He knows that our hearts many times are rocky soil. And yet he doesn't say, I'm not going to waste my time. If you're sitting here today under the preaching of God's word, he has taken a moment to meet us where we are. So even though he knows the content of our hearts, like John 6.37 says, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That's good news, amen? As we continue verse 31, Jesus says this, and this is where we want to camp out for a few moments. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. An important question for us to ask is, what is a disciple? One of the markers of a disciple is that we abide in his word. Well, abide's not really a word that we use a lot in our modern American context, and so I want to break that down for us a little bit. It means really two things that I want to emphasize today. The first is obedience. I want to let that sit for a second. Abiding in his word means obedience to his word. Obedience is the definite, necessary, and certain result of regeneration. Obedience is the fruit. It is our response to God making the first move. Revelation 2.26 echoes this sentiment. It says, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, I will give authority over the nations. Abiding in his word also means perseverance. John 15.8 says that when we bear fruit, we prove to be his disciples. Hebrews 3.14 says this, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Perseverance. And lastly, 1 John 2.19 says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Obedience is the result of being made alive together with Christ. But you know what we do so often is we reverse the order of that. 
That is the most simple definition of man-made religion that I can give you, is that we get the order reversed. We think that the way to God is to obey him and then he'll accept us. No. We are accepted in Christ. We are welcomed. And when the Father sees us, he no longer sees our unrighteousness. He sees the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ. Pastor Dave just said last week, the beauty of our salvation is that it's not about us making our way to God. It's about God making his way to us. I mean, really think about this for a moment. We can't think that we would walk in disobedience to God. He's told us how to live. We can't think that we can receive the free gift of justification by faith alone and then go on living however we want. Romans 8 tells us this. That those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he has also justified, made right with the Father. Those whom he has justified, he has also sanctified. And that's where we're camping out today. Sanctification is the ongoing being made more holy. And it takes our entire lives. We're not overnight made completely holy. We don't immediately, as soon as we give our heart to Jesus, we don't immediately stop having a desire to sin. I wish we did. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? But that gives us something to look forward to. Oh, that day when freed from sinning. This brings us to our next point of true freedom. In verse 32, Jesus says this. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But it's not just talking about intellectual facts. As we see here in our text this morning, these first century Jewish believers were not set free just because they believed that what Jesus said about himself was true, because they misapplied it. They expected the Messiah to come not as a spiritual liberator, but as a political liberator. So when Jesus tells these Jewish believers that they'll be set free, they respond by saying, we've never been in bondage to anyone. Which if you know the the story of the Bible, largely, that's absurd. They've been in slavery most of their lives. We'll get there in just a few moments, so... What does it mean to know the truth? Well, throughout the New Testament, this word that is translated in our English translations as truth is pretty interchangeable, actually, with the gospel. A lot of times it's used in tandem, the truth of the gospel. So what is the gospel? It's not just mentally assenting. They hear Jesus saying, I'm the promised Messiah, and they go, check. And then they hear him say, if you abide in my word, and they go, gotcha, we're with you there. And then he says, you're in slavery, and they go, wait, 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 hold up. They don't trust the word of Christ. Man, it's so easy for us to throw them under the bus 2,000 years on. We do it all the time, guys. I know I do. And I'm so grateful for the grace of God that when he sees me doing that, the indwelling Holy Spirit goes, Dan, if you are truly my disciple, you abide in my word. And it doesn't always go well, but by the grace of God, it gets better and better over time. But real liberty in Christ is having a new master. 
we would like to think that we have a master before we're in Christ, and then we're liberated and we no longer have a master. That's not liberation, brothers and sisters. We have been set free to do as we ought. We've been set free to walk in obedience. Romans 6.18 says this, Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Now, just a couple verses later, it says, Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, this goes back to our point about obedience, the fruit you get leads to, here's that big word again, sanctification, and its end, eternal life. In Christ, we've been set free from sin's dominion and have been delivered into the eternally safe hands of our Savior. After the Civil War, there were a lot of slaves that had been liberated. Well, what did they do? A lot of them didn't know what to do. Think about it. It was, it was a terrifying prospect. Maybe not worse than being beaten and abused in many, many ways. But now that they were freed, they woke up the next morning as freed men and freed women. And they go, where am I, I going to eat? And many of them would rather go back under that yoke of slavery. This is something Pastor Dave alluded to last week as well. A lot of times we stay in our situation because it's what we know. And this is what we do a lot of times. We hear the good news. We hear the gospel of grace. And we think we're liberated. But then the next day we keep going back to our slavery. And I think that's why these Jews responded to Jesus the way that they did. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they say, hold on, we're, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will be free? It reminds me of the way Nicodemus responded to Jesus in John chapter 3, where Jesus tells him he must be born again. And he goes, well, how can someone be born again? Do you re-enter the womb? And honestly, I think Nicodemus was trying to diplomatically show Jesus he was wrong. Have you guys done that? I have. Probably every day. Every time I open the word, I read something and I go, that can't be right. I've got to be misunderstanding this. And so I try to diplomatically say, well, surely Jesus meant this. But the Jews' response here in verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? How arrogant is that response, right? Just moments ago, they believed Jesus, and now they're trying to tell him he's wrong. Well, something important to understand is this. They weren't referring to political enslavement. They knew that Jesus knew that they had been enslaved in Egypt, in Babylon, in Assyria. And even, even then, in that present moment, they were under the Roman authority. So they understood that Jesus was talking about spiritual things. They just didn't understand what that meant. But how often we respond to Jesus this way and we go... No, no, no. I mean, I, there's no way that I'm still in bondage to sin. I'm a Christian. I was born in a Christian home. I was raised in a Christian nation. Maybe even I went to a Christian school. There's no way I'm in bondage. Anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 
That's pretty intense. Because how many of us have sinned this week? Right? Man, I, I would love right now to give you where we're going with this, but I want to let that steep for a few minutes. If you didn't raise your hand, you should have. All of us have sinned this week in thought or in deed. And yet here we have Jesus saying, if anyone sins, he's a slave to sin. And we fight Jesus to the nail to defend the concept that we can do whatever. We're not in bondage to sin. I can say no to sin anytime. And I'm not, look at this, I'm not talking about like big, gross, radical sins. Like, you know, we think of the things that we see in the headlines and the news and we're, it's not like we're sitting there going like, yeah, no, obviously I can refuse to murder people. But Jesus turned that on its head when he said, you've heard it said, do not murder. And yet I say to you, if you have thought a hateful thought about a brother, you've committed murder. You know, we see all these sex abuse scandals in the headlines and we go, well, I'm not Harvey Weinstein, but Jesus says, if you thought a lustful thought in your heart about a woman, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. So Jesus tells these believers, like he tells us today, that you are in bondage and you need to be set free. And yet we fight him on it and we say, we're not bound to sin. And it comes out like this. It looks like this. When we talk about how we're made right with God. We think that we have a little something to boast of. Now, I know if we got down to brass tacks, all of us would say we have no room to boast. But we like the idea that we contributed in some way. But scripture paints us as dead. While you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once, in which you once walked, you were made alive together with Christ. Well, what can dead men do? Not an awful lot. And so we, we fight to defend the concept that we're free from sin. We're not. Not yet anyway. So think about this. In Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, Alice comes to a fork in the road. and She sees the Cheshire cat grinning in the tree and she goes can you tell me which way to go? And he says, well, it largely depends on where you want to end up. She goes, I don't care really an awful lot where I end up. And he goes, then it doesn't really matter all that much which way you go. So Alice actually didn't, you know, we, we look at that and we go, Alice had two choices. She could go right or she could go left in the fork in the road. There's actually more choices than that. She also could have turned around and went back where she came from, or she could have stood there in the fork in the road until she died. Ultimately, she makes a decision because she has an inclination. In Alice in Wonderland, the inclination is to get somewhere. Maybe a, a, an also helpful picture, and I'll tie this together in a moment, is a, a mule stands before two baskets of food, wheats and oat. And that mule is probably going to be more inclined to one or the other. This particular mule likes oats better than wheat, so I'm going to eat out of this basket. He has an inclination toward that thing. If he were equally predisposed to either one of them, if he liked wheats just as much as he liked oats, he would stand there and not make a decision until he starved to death. 
But as soon as he makes a decision, we see that he is inclined toward one rather than the other. What are we inclined toward, brothers and sisters? We are inclined toward, as children of Adam, as descendants of Adam and Eve, we are inclined toward rebellion. We are inclined toward pride. We won't stand there and say, see before you is the path of life and of death. Choose you this day. And we don't just stand there until we die. We make a decision. And apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, all of us, every time, will choose to rebel against God and say, I got this. I can do it on my own. Now, do you want to say like the Jews said, we've never been enslaved to anyone? We must be given a new nature. Ezekiel 36 talks about the heart of stone being taken out and replaced with a heart of flesh. If you are here today and you are in Christ, brothers and sisters, you have been given a new heart. And that was God acting first. The gospel takes our preconceived ideas of how the world works and turns them on their head. Religion says, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. But the gospel says, God doesn't have an itch. And even if he did, you couldn't scratch it. Religion says, God helps those who help themselves. The gospel says, you can't afford the debt you owe. That's why Jesus had to come and pay the debt for us. Religion says, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And the gospel says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And faith is a gift from God so that no one can boast. That's why the cross is a stumbling block. See, in our text today, Jesus hadn't even been to the cross yet. But the truth was there. The gospel is eternal. It it occurred in time, but it was true outside of time. And so that's what these Jewish believers were were bumping up against. They were going, there's something not right here. Like, I disagree with what Jesus is saying. What do you think that you can offer God that he didn't first give to you? Salvation is all of grace. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So the difficult question is, does the Bible teach that a Christian never sins? And 1 John 5.18 says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. The New American Standard translates it, we know that no one who is born of God sins. Man, and we read that and we go, gosh, what do I do there? So this is actually, this is interesting. This is the same gospel writer that we're reading in the gospel of John. He wrote these epistles. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So 1st John 5.18 says, whoever is born of God does not keep on sinning. But he also says, two chapters earlier in 1st John 3.9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. The distinction here is that true Christians, true disciples, cannot make peace with sin. We cannot be friends with sin. We can't coexist with sin. We will sin, brothers and sisters. But the mark of a true disciple isn't sinlessness, but a growing hatred of sin. 
No longer being a slave to sin means being freed to obey God. How providential that that was where we were in our theological question of the week this week. How can we glorify God? Very simply stated, by enjoying him and by obeying him. Obedience is the absolutely definite, guaranteed result of enjoying, loving, and trusting God. Don't get those reversed. If we get that reversed, we will never find joy in God. We will always think that God is looming over us, waiting to crush us. I'm reminded of the director of the International Mission Board, David Platt, who came under some controversy for something he wrote in a book about God hating sinners. A week after the book was published, news reporters showed up at his church, and they came up to him after the service, and they go, David, David, did, did you really say in your book that God hates sinners? And he says, yes. And they go, uh, can you explain yourself? And he says, if you want to see how much God hates sinners, look at what he did to Jesus on the cross. But if you want to see how much God loves sinners, look at what he did to Jesus on the cross. So when you stand feeling condemned, be reminded there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when you feel the gravity and the weight of the fact that God could justly crush you, be reminded that he did in Jesus on the cross. Jesus alone was the one who could take the weight of the wrath of the Father on our behalf. In your uh, worship guide insert with the catechism question, there's a, a brief devotional from Brian Chapel, and he, he writes um, about how we will live in constant fear about how God's going to get us if we get the order reversed, if we think that we obey God in order to enjoy God. But if we enjoy God, we will delight to obey him. Now, I want to make one brief caveat here. There are times when we are consumed with self and we obey out of duty. We won't always feel like it. Expect that. Give it to Christ and ask the Holy Spirit to enable us to enjoy him. Things like clapping our hands, things like lifting our voices in praise, we come into this sanctuary after a week of being beat down, after a week of not being able to pay our bills, after a week of stumbling and sinning, after a week of feeling like the world is against us, and we come in here, and we stand up here, and we say, come on, guys, clap your hands, and we don't feel like it, right? But we're commanded to do so in Scripture, and so we obey dutifully. But if it's that way all the time, We'll live in constant fear. Romans 12.1 says this, this. is a familiar verse. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In Grace Kids today, uh, we are teaching our, our young ones 
that when we obey God, it's how we say thank you to God. I could have just stood up here this morning and just said that and walked off the platform and been okay with it. When we obey God, it is how we say thank you, God, for who you are, for what you've done, for loving us, for showing us grace, and even for showing justice. Thank you, God. And this is important. I want to take us around this last bend. In verse 35, Jesus says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You see, slaves have no rights in the household. They have no inheritance in the household. A slave could be put out of the household with no notice or sold to another household with no say in the matter. Only a true heir of the household can liberate a slave. Jesus, as the only begotten Son of God, condescends, he stoops down to where we are to free us. And it was only ever Jesus who could do that. Even we as freed slaves can't do that. We're adopted children. We're truly children, but we're adopted. Jesus, as the only begotten of the Father, is the only one who can liberate us from our bondage to sin. Jesus said this at the beginning of his earthly ministry, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now we're sent as representatives of the Son. We don't go to people and say, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me to liberate captives. No, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon Jesus alone to liberate captives. And I'm here as a representative to say, if you are in bondage to sin today, you can be liberated. Freedom is not found in Christianity as such. We can't get someone to just sign up for Christianity and think that they'll be liberated from the bonds of sin. It is in the person and work of Christ alone. Freedom isn't even found in Grace Family Fellowship as an institution. It'd be easy for us to think, well, boy, if we could just get our unbelieving neighbors, coworkers, our friends, our family here, they can be set free. Only insofar as we give them Jesus. When they come through the doors of this sanctuary, we don't want to give them ourselves. My goodness. That would offer no hope. We get out of the way and so we say, get him to Jesus. We open the rooftop and we lower this crippled man down to Jesus and say, please, Jesus, heal. Please. And only he can. So what does this mean for us? First, 
Just as Christ took time to speak to the believers in John 8, so does he take time to speak to us. Not depending on the depth of our understanding or the depth of our commitment, but based upon his compassion for us. Our eternal security does not rest on our finite shoulders, but upon the eternal shoulders of the Savior. Like a parent holding the hand of a child crossing a raging flood, that child is kept safe not by the child's ability to hold on, but by the parent's ability. Yes, hold on tightly, but know that it is not your grip that saves you. It is Jesus' grip on us. Secondly, abide in the word of Christ. And I don't just mean read the Bible daily, although we certainly should. I mean to remain steadfast in the power of the Holy Spirit. Walk daily in obedience by putting to death the deeds of the flesh. No longer be at peace with sin. Wage war with it. When you sin, you have an advocate with the Son. And in the Holy Spirit, you have a helper to seek to crucify the desires of our old nature. Bearing fruit in keeping with repentance is just that. It is fruit. It is the, re- the result of being found in Christ. The plan of the Father, purchased by the Son, and perfected by the Holy Spirit, is the root. Don't get them confused. God didn't choose to save us because he knew that we would choose him. We chose him because he saved us. We love him because he first loved us. May we not respond so arrogantly as those did in John 8. When Jesus tells us we're enslaved to sin, may we not boastfully respond that, no, we're free. May we instead, in brokenness and humility, cry out to him and ask that the Son would liberate us from our chains. And lastly, we must go. Those who have been set free have a sense not of begrudging duty, but of dutiful delight. To tell those who are still in their chains that there is a redeemer. Come and see one who, even though he knows the details of my heart and every sin that I've ever committed, loves me anyway. May this liberation in Christ propel us into our communities, into the streets, to invite any and all who would hear Jesus to come and be set free by Jesus, the only begotten Son of the Father. We hope you've been encouraged by this sermon. To find out more, visit gracefamilyph.com.